and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So, Rishi Sunak has made it to a year in Downing Street. He comfortably outlasted Liz Truss and any rival lettuces. He's also gone past Douglas Hume, Bonner Law and Pitt the Elder. But how have those first 365 days actually worked out? What has Sunak achieved? How has he surprised us? And what might the next year hold? And from the man in number 10 to a woman who one day might fancy a tilt at the job. Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, enjoyed a successful Labour conference this year with a speech that had many commentators and party members wondering if this was a future party leader in the making. And she's also written a book, which she launched this week at the IFG. We're going to discuss what Reevesonomics really is and what Rachel Reeves wants to do differently. I'm joined in the studio by my IFG colleague and a one-time advisor in number 10, Giles Wilkes. Hi, Giles. Good morning, Hannah. And Kath Haddon is back too. Hi, Kath. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted to be joined again by Politico's Dan Bloom, one of the masterminds of their Essential Morning Playbook. Hi, Dan. I imagine it's been a long day already. Hi, Hannah. Let's start with the Sunak anniversary. A year in office is not to be sniffed at these days. Dan, will Sunak be celebrating or just feeling a bit relieved? Uh, well, judging by the performances of last year, he could probably be celebrating just lasting this long, let alone anything else. What he won't be celebrating, obviously, is still sort of trailing 15-odd points behind in the polls. And a couple of those opportunities to pull things around a little bit, like the party conference speech, and then you've got you know the King's speech coming up in not very long, are sort of sailing by without any significant change. So there will be sort of muted celebration if there is celebration. And I think when we asked number 10, when my colleagues asked them how he was celebrating, they were very stern and just said getting on with the job of governing, which is uh, they're pretty, pretty much their holding line at the moment. So a celebration may be the wrong word there. And the plan at the start seemed to be to convince the electorate that he could govern without fireworks or I guess more accurately chaos of his predecessors. Do you think that number 10 strategists essentially thought that would be enough to restore the Conservatives' poll ratings? I think perhaps they thought it was a start because, you know, you do look at some of his early wins, like look at the Windsor Framework Agreement, for example, back earlier this year. The fact that he kind of held back and held back and didn't try and hype it up. And then eventually it did land. The rebellion against it was pretty piddly in the end. Um, And he managed to kind of basically kill that as an issue. Um, That's kind of the competent... Rishi, if you like. But then coming later this year, you start to get into issues of, well, it's not enough to convince the public. Complicated trade issues don't necessarily get discussed across the dining room table. So he's having to find something more to do. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how he sets up the King's speech and whether that is, as some people suspected earlier on, kind of red meat and quick hits uh, before an election to do something populist and win over the voters or whether there'll be some more meaty stuff um, and quite a lot in there and more from the manifesto, uh, which is what a couple of people have been suggesting to me, though obviously, you know, people are not allowed to comment on the King's speech. Giles, Sunak has made some pretty dramatic policy U-turns over the last year, hasn't he? Can we work out what Sunakism really is from what we've seen of his performance? To understand Richie Sunak, you've got to see the long history of it is enormously long ministerial career going all the way back to 2017. But 
the really interesting things that Rishi Sunak has done from my point of view as a sort of economics observer really start with March 2021 and his budget and him raising corporate tax because he said, we need this money to pay for public services. That kind of fired the starting gun on this big wall within the conservative economic argument about whether we should be tax cutters or funding public services better and prioritising the deficit. He followed this up a year later with a really important Mays lecture. Every chance he gets to give one. And his was he turned around to the tax cutters in his party and said, not until we sorted out the deficit, guys. And that is still in arguably the most important statement of Sunakism. I'd love to see whether it comes under pressure or not under the next year as that enormous polling gap remains. But for me, that's still the most interesting thing. He took on 50% of his party and he has so far stuck to it. He's kept the Chancellor who came in to basically reverse all of Liz Truss's fiscal madness and tax cutting agenda. And so I still think that although we all focus on the latest thing, and the party conferences and the fact that it didn't relaunch very much. I would say that sort of strong fiscal stance plus the Windsor Agreement. In other words, I'm a, I'm a Brexiteer, but I'm not a, a totally unpragmatic Brexiteer like Lord Frost. I want to do what's best for the country now that we're in control of it all. And finally, the obsession with technology, which we're seeing today in a big speech about AI, a huge summit about AI coming up, but all sorts of actually said with a straight face, long-term policies towards things like quantum, artificial intelligence, carbon capture and removal. I would say that there is a story that Rishi Sunak has done exactly what you kind of expected him to do. He's been a kind of sensible fiscal person who really believes in technology and tries to put in place long policies. So I'd say, yeah, the U-turn, I don't like that at all. And I think he will come to regret the idea that he stood up there as a long-term prime minister and scrapped these long-term policies. But otherwise, I'd say there has been a consistent Sunakism. I just don't think it's an election-winning strategy. Well, I was going to say that to you, Kath, I mean, given what Giles says there about actually a degree of consistency from Sunak, how plausible is it for him to claim that he's going to be the change candidate, which seemed to be the strategy we saw emerging at the election? Yeah, I mean, well, we can already see that it's not really working for him. And that was a big part of what happened at the party conference. It's, I mean, it's interesting to note he seemed to have come back from the summer holidays with a slight shift. There was a change in personnel. And then suddenly you had these sort of new tickets uh, items that, that Sunak was obviously planning to try and use to portray himself as I'm going to do things a bit differently. He's obviously got this tagline about how it's all about the long term future. But the reality of the stuff that came out then was a bit questionable on that front. To be able to portray yourself as a change candidate, it's not just where you are in the electoral cycle. It's not just that it's 13 years of, of, of one party being in successive governments. It's also where the electorate are at. It's where you as a person can position yourself. Johnson was very good in 2019 as positioning himself as the change candidate because he had that persona, because that's where the public were at. That's what they wanted. And because it was on an issue that you could show that you were going to be wildly different. But Sunak hasn't got that one issue on which he can say that he can criticise all his predecessors. Instead, what he's doing is criticising them on pretty much everything. And we saw uh, in and around party conference, people like David Cameron, George Osborne, being quite vocal at how unhappy they were at, at their legacy being trodden over to, for, for Sunak to portray himself as the new change person going into this election. So, yeah. Difficult for him to be able to do that at this stage, uh, given the context, given the policy issues. And Dan, just picking up on that point that Kath makes, I mean, it wasn't 
necessarily a unifying strategy for the Conservative Party to to basically tell everybody, all your predecessors, that that they'd failed and so a fresh start was needed, was it? No, and it it sort of buckles under a a couple of its own contradictions. So actually, when you were talking to Downing Street people in September, they were saying, well, uh, there's been a first phase. The first phase was fixing the mess that we were left, this sort of immediate economic stuff after Liz Truss. And now we're moving into what Rishi Sunak really is and really wants to do and it's about him and what he believes in so when you look at scrapping a levels for example you know no one is standing there on the doorstep saying please please uh, i'll vote for you as my mp if you scrap a levels it's a it's a structural systemic thing that he just as a sort of slightly techie geeky policy guy believes in very deeply so these things of course hs2 as well you know they haven't been set up as some kind of conflict with the rest of his party. If anything, they've been set up less as a conflict with the rest of his party than the sort of recovery phase from Liz Truss. But because just by definition, they are U-turning on older policies, you know, rather than coming up with something entirely new with no reference to the past, then obviously that has put a lot of noses out of joint. And so I, I, I honestly don't know how much that was sort of anticipated or discussed that that would become a, an aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, far be it for me to advertise any other podcast, but listening to some other podcasts which may feature former conservative politicians and indeed former Labour politicians, there's there's been quite a lot of grumpiness, I would say, about those attacks. Giles, fundamentally, presumably, a lot of the Conservatives' chances at the next election are going to come down to the economy, and and Sunak's put the economy front and centre in his five pledges. What are his chances of moving the dial on that between now and we, we assume a year's time? I would say they are between very, very low and zero because the economy has, and people's sort of memory of the economy has real sort of persistence and momentum. So I remember in the early 90s when actually, if you look back on it now, you'd say it's fantastic. The economy is growing really, really fast. The policy is working. If you, in 1994, I bet you if, if the internet was big, word searches for recession were still really, really high. And the memories of the scarring 15% interest rates and high inflation and repossessions and so forth were still really, really current. So people tend to think about the last few years. So even if we start seeing a bit of an uptick now and inflation comes down and real wages start growing and interest rates stop rising, things like mortgage rates will carry on passing through the system as people come off their fixed rates. So people are still going to feel that. Slow moving things like the housing market are going to still impact people because on the whole what first of all happens is it stops selling and then people start marking their prices down so that feel bad effect bad effect is going to be there but also an event like 2022 sticks in people's minds for a long time mostly people do not notice the economy they don't pay attention when quarterly gdp figures come out when events like um the last two weeks of september first few weeks of october last year happen people just that, that's fixed in their mind and it doesn't help that Liz Truss is still there sort of popping up saying I was right all along and I was just sort of unlucky in my timing or something. So I think the economy is not going to rescue him. Because we attend Tory conference, you get those emails from the Prime Minister, look how much I'm delivering. He's saying, oh, haven't we done well? We've got inflation down to 6.7%. 6.7% is still prices rising quite a lot. And if that's what their boast point is, the economy isn't going to be the thing that rescues them at all. So it will need to be something else, maybe a hidden dark matter of conservative voters who have just been sulking and are then going to stop sulking when the election happens. But otherwise, I can't see what's going to stop them from suffering a double digit defeat at the at the least. And Kath, I mean, 
if that's the sort of uh, difficulty for Sunak of, of shifting anything on the economy over the next year, what other cards does he have left to play? I mean, even before he became prime minister during the leadership contest, it was always going to be a process of trying to have two years to turn around the fortunes, come in and, and win an election. And and clearly there was this strategy, as Dan was saying, there was the, the first year try and steady the ship and then the second year let Sunak be Sunak or whatever other cliche. I mean, the problem is that there is this inherent tension between what you might be able to do to win the election and what you might need to do over the next year governing. Or rather, his problem is that if the two of those are in tension, if he can find some magic way, which I think he's trying to do with the, look at me, I'm being bold, I'm, I'm governing for the long term. If you can manage to say, look, I'm doing stuff that's important for the future of the country. The AI stuff is a good example of that. And that wins over the public because you look like you're being just competent, you're, you're, you're steadying the ship, you're doing all of those things, then great. The problem is we've had a year of it and it doesn't seem seem to be making a difference for all the reasons that we've discussed. The perspective on the Conservatives seems to be baked in quite hard at the moment. There are there may be some voters out there, some Conservative voters staying home, staying away from the polls. But, you know, unless something fundamentally changes or Labour have a massive misstep or something, it's not looking good. And his problem is the party in that context are, you know, they're in danger of, of falling into apathy, if not anger and frustration. We have seen many times in the last several years of the party turning against a leader. I think they all know that, you know, this is the last leader you can have going into the next election. And I've got to work with that, despite the fact that you get a few people talking about votes of confidence and so forth. And it's very hard to keep that constituency, those MPs together, because they'll each be looking to their own constituency and what the problems are there and wanting to see policies on that front. And it doesn't make for a coherent policy platform. So, I think my answer is a bit of a mess because the position Sunak is in is a bit of a mess, to be honest. Dan, we've had some indications that potentially there might be a government reshuffle in the coming week while Parliament is prorogued and some some chat about whether Jeremy Hunt might be vulnerable. Yes, um, I think what's difficult to tell is how much of the chat about Jeremy Hunt potentially being vulnerable is from Conservatives who just do not like Jeremy Hunt because they want something a bit more oomphy. And of course, Jeremy Hunt was brought in specifically to stop everything being so oomphy. He's in a bit of a tricky position with a reshuffle. You know, there have been all sorts of rumours, reporting, briefings that turn out to be wrong. So I'm very hesitant to say, yeah, I think there's going to be a reshuffle. But the timing is tricky, however he does it. Because if he does it just before the King's speech, then obviously you have a whole load of new secretaries of state who are then having to steer through bills that they had absolutely no conversations about putting into the King's speech. If it's just afterwards, you know, you've got a similar position. And then there's, of course, the autumn statement as well, where if you do a a reshuffle a couple of weeks before then, you end up with uh, people landing in charge of a department. And the first thing they have to do is either see through this big policy that they have no sight of or make efficiency cuts here or technical changes there. So there were a lot of Conservative MPs voicing to me that they were surprised and not just because they wanted to be promoted back in September that Rishi Sunak wasn't doing what Keir Starmer was doing and doing it right at the beginning of the parliamentary, uh, the sort of September year and, um, and just getting it over and done with. 
Yeah, I, I suspect that it's because, as ever with these things, there's different forces at play in it. And I mean, the Institute for Government, we always say that we want you know to see stability in ministers, churn in ministers isn't good for policymaking and so forth. So if Sunak himself is more focused on the job in hand, we ought to be praising that. If it is his advisors pushing for a reshuffle because they think it's going to be this magic fix, it isn't. I can't think of a reshuffle in recent years that has managed to do that. There's probably a lot of, we call them the 2019 as people who came into parliament recently who want that ministerial experience, particularly if the Conservatives might end up out of office. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure. But again, you do a reshuffle, suddenly there's also a load of people who didn't get a job and are never going to get a job. So they don't even have the promise of a potential job. So as soon as you've used the reshuffle as your weapon, that's it. It's gone. And that's kind of borne out with what happened with Labour, where they basically dangled the prospect of a reshuffle for about nine months with you know various people kind of reporting it in the press and it never happening. And what that meant is that it basically kept a lot of people who would otherwise speak out of turn in line in the hope that they either wouldn't be demoted or would be promoted. And privately, a few people kind of close to Kistler were quite chuffed that we kept reporting that there might be a reshuffle because, uh, you know, it kind of helped with party discipline. And Giles... Today, we were recording on Thursday, Sunak's made a big speech on AI. What did you make of it? I haven't managed to read it all yet, but apparently there are three papers to come out. So the, the jokes going around my circles are, can we train AI to read these things for us so that we can summarise them very quickly? It, he, is a, he is positive about AI. He thinks that Britain has got a chance of getting ahead and growing using it. And either being the, and we, we have kind of centres of expertise here. Famously, we started DeepMind here, which is one of the leading AI companies. We have been investing in it for quite a while. I'd say going back to the Theresa May period when I was there, that they set up things called AI sector deals and started funding academia and, and so on and so forth. And, and I understand that this some summit that is coming up is a really massive priority for Downing Street. They really want the UK to take a lead, kind of demonstrating that post-Brexit, the UK can still forge ahead. But as smart people have been pointing out to me on social media, the UK is actually quite good at designing new regulatory frameworks from the moment we started privatising our industries 30, 40 years ago. We've been quite good at that thinking. And it's an opportunity now to try to set up frameworks for new kinds of asset we don't kind of have the legal basis for. So if there's going to be a huge amount of value in algorithms, it might not be the case that we have the legal system ready. So I think he wants the UK to get onto the front foot with this while having to acknowledge all of the dangers because the general view is that within a couple of years, if you speak to government insiders, within a couple of years, the potential threat from quite bad rogue AI actors in like fake videos and election interference and so on is going to be really significant. And any prime minister who gets up there and doesn't mention these is going to seem reckless. You know, obviously really big questions about how we how we regulate AI and, and different indications from, from different parts of the world about preferences for how to approach that while some maximizing the benefits but minimizing some of the risks. Dan, did you have a, a look at the speech to see, see any of these famous documents? Uh, I had the joy of looking at the documents at, you know, 11 o'clock last night when writing Playbook. And what comes over it very strongly is the risks side of it, because that's what these documents are for. It's it's almost sort of the only big thing that the government can do here because uh, the original ambition, I think, was to make the UK the centre of AI regulation. And that's obviously a difficult thing. And so they've sort of stepped it back to be like, make the UK the centre of assessing what the risks are, which is, you know, slightly less sexy. But what comes across, you know, really strongly is, first of all, how horrible all this stuff is, you know, 
sextortion, bioweapons, societal unrest, but also how completely uncertain it is. The key document is one from the Government Office for Science. We'll all remember them from the days of SAGE, which is sort of part of the same organogram. And they've got five scenarios, which kind of range from terrorist groups trying to develop bioweapons to actually AI being a bit of a disappointment and not really taking off and getting a negative reputation to the point that firms use AI but don't tell the public they're using it because they don't want to put people off. So what it is is really a statement that the scientific community thinks there's a potential huge risk here but can't really agree what exactly that risk is going to be and that's why the UK is trying to bring together all these different countries and experts to to assess it better so that they can at least have a roadmap to the thing that Rishi Sunak originally wanted which was to become a centre of regulation. Yeah and I think it's worth emphasising that like this is the kind of stuff that we always want to see from governments you know putting out there some policy ideas getting something out that isn't just the automatic we're doing this and then it starts to fall apart a prime minister leading on an issue an issue that is a long-term challenge as well as a short-term need you know making sure that there's that prime ministerial authority behind it it is the kind of sort of way in which a prime minister just talked about it. It could be, you know, final year in office, even when you're approaching an election, still thinking about these important issues that are going to cross lots of different parts of government. It is the right kind of policy making that we want to see. So I think it is worth praising the Prime Minister for that. And I think you're absolutely right, Giles, that in terms of sort of the legal basis and, and questions around the regulation of these sorts of new technologies which are emerging, that is something where the U- UK can potentially get ahead. Uh, as a newly minted non-executive director of the Law Commission, I know that, the, that they are doing some thinking about lots of these different angles on AI, including what I learned about most recently, decentralised autonomous organisations, which are these sort of basically bits of code on the internet that nobody's quite clear what the legal basis is for you know where they sit and, and what they do and coming up with novel legal ways to to think about and deal with these sorts of new innovations is things that we certainly can do something about Kath, Rishi Sunak tweeted a video to mark his 52 weeks in power which ended with the question what can a government do with 52 weeks in power watch this space do you think that's a clue for the uh, date of the next general election no uh or i mean it might inadvertently be but i think it was just you know, pivoting from we've done 52 weeks, here's another 52 weeks. Nor do I think they were trying to convey and we only think we've got 52 weeks left of being in power. I'm sure they would be wanting to say and then another five years after that. But yeah, it it was yet another video. I mean, we've seen this from Rishi Sunak time and again. We've seen it, uh, you know, we're talking about changing technology. We've seen it from governments more recently, more use of social media, trying to get out the snazzy videos. We had yet another snazzy video with snazzy music on it. And it's, you know, was matched by a Labour one with less snazzy music, I should say. It was more of a comedic effort to uh, try and undermine the Conservatives. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of these kinds of videos the next year, and I'm already weary of them. Okay, well, let's switch our attention to Labour and in particular to Rachel Reeves. The Shadow Chancellor's speech at conference went down well. And this week, she launched her new book with an event at the IFG. Here's a clip. 
You don't need to have women economists to uh, have someone making the case for um, equal pay or closing the gender pay gap. But the truth is, both in politics and economics, it has been women that have pursued those causes. So politically, of course, it was Barbara Castle who legislated in 1970 for equal pay. But it was women economists, again, particularly Mary Paley Marshall, who I think is the first um, woman, um, the first economist to, to write in detail about why there are differences between um, um, pay of men and women. Then Joan Robinson, along with the work she did on monopsony uh, employment and the minimum wage, wrote about uh, the gender pay gap. And I think it is just fair to say that unless there are women in the room, and women at the you know, economic table, a lot of issues will be neglected. It's the same in politics as well. You know, the key uh, advances for women in politics, I think, have been driven by women in politics, you know, not least Harriet Harman and the amazing work that she did on the Equality Act uh, and on tackling domestic violence, uh, but you know, also women like um, um, Barbara Castle, who you know, I say in the book, um, still today we have a gender pay gap of 15%. We may have equal pay legislation and that's made a massive difference. We still have a gender pay gap of 15%. I want to be the Chancellor that closes that pay gap once and for all. Perhaps as interesting as what Reeve said was, and I'm sure this was at least in part down to the pulling power of the IFG, who came here to hear her? Dan, Playbook had all the details as usual. Uh, yes, so thanks for inviting me is the uh, you know token uh, bit I have to get in there. But I th- uh, first thought this event's not that well you know attended. You've got a few of her real shadow cabinet allies, uh, you know, Wes Streeting in the front row and that kind of thing. But actually the room's quite small. Little did I know until afterwards, of course, that you had two overspill rooms where TV's Carol Vorderman and Labour Chief of Staff Sue Gray couldn't get into the uh, the main event. So it it kind of this is not just me lavishing praise on the IFG or anything, but it kind of smelt of power, the room. And by that, I mean, it was a little bit too full and, you know, a bit sweaty, a bit like Tory conference was for many years. You have kind of pretty much every power player on the centre left, you know, journalists as well, wonks, as we call them, like yourselves, packed in and hanging on over every word, which I don't think you would have seen two or three years ago, even even when she was still Shadow Chancellor, but when Labour didn't look like they were ascendant into government. I had one Shadow Cabinet Minister telling me at the event that the conference was mad. They just couldn't shake all of these lobbyists who were were following them around, like people were just sidling up to and forming a queue to, to talk to them. And that is the world that the Labour Party finds itself in now that it hasn't for many, many years. And in terms of what Rachel Reeves actually said, Dan, was there any any news in there for all you journalists who turned up? Um, If you're talking about hard policy news, then not so much. She did make some interesting comments about how she wants to do gender analysis of budgets. So uh, I I must admit this is not my special, special subject, but I think it used to be done formally by the government and now it's something that Labour, mainly politicians, do to budgets to kind of keep up the tradition. And her argument is, you know, what those analysis have found in the past is that when you make a policy decision on on some sort of tax or benefit, sometimes the gendered impact of that can be extreme. You know, I remember covering one years ago in the old, in my old job at the Mirror, it's off the top of my head, but I think it was something like 89% of the benefits went to men and the rest went to, to women. So it is a really interesting thing policy-wise, whether they bring it back straight away or how they do it, I, she didn't spell out all of that. But the rest was more a sort of interesting looking to how she works. I thought one of the more interesting answers was she was asked, how did you find the time to do this? 
and she didn't quite explain how she found the hours but she did say that writing the book was a sort of formative process that helped her work out what she wants to do and how she wants to see the economy. Kath, how much should we actually read into books written by politicians? Are they about setting out their real political mission or are they more about self-promotion? Um, I mean, obviously everything is about self-promotion. I do think, you know, what Dan was just saying is is quite important. How she found the time, I don't know. Hannah, as somebody who's also found the time to write a book during a busy, you know, busy time, I don't know how any of you managed to do it. I, I think it is important to understand that there is something behind this. You know, Rachel Reeves isn't just somebody who this is the job that she's doing. She is a serious economist. She really believes in this stuff. And it probably was formative in helping her think through, you know, what she thinks about all sorts of different things. It's worth noting there's been a new story. Uh, the FT have done some analysis and have found various Wikipedia bits that haven't been referenced, bits from, I think, a forward by Hilary Benn and other extracts that haven't been footnoted. I mean, in her forward, Rachel Reeves does thank the researchers as somebody myself who has worked on one of these political books. What happens is you have some researchers, they go away, do a lit review, they start pulling together material. If you're not carefully footnoting that, and even if you do, it then goes through all sorts of drafting and iterations where the sourcing for stuff gets lost in the in the ether and and that's probably what's happened in this so I'm a bit sympathetic to it happening but obviously it's a big embarrassment you know it's not great when you've just got this book out to then get those kind of headlines but I don't think it it undermines the the work involved in the the, the substance of what she's sort of trying to talk about and it's uh, significant that it's the FT that's running this story uh, which is a paper that wouldn't have kind of done this sort of thing lightly it's not some sort of quick hit Tory HQ kind of handout job to a friendly paper. You know, they, they clearly have looked at it and uh, thought about it carefully before publishing. Giles, we're going to be launching our annual performance tracker next week. And spoiler alert, it has some pretty harsh numbers on the state of public services and what future spending plans may mean. Do you think Labour is being honest with the electorate? I think Labour's being very cagey is the truth. And um, I don't know whether there's an easy way for them to navigate this without having to be cagey. I think the big missing number in all fiscal assessments right now is the amount of money we need to add to public spending totals in order to sort of get ourselves somehow back to uh, a decent place. And I think the IFG's performance monitor is going to be the absolute best way to try to understand this. I've been discussing it with sort of more fiscally minded thinkers. The next, what, what is the information that you would desperately want in the public domain, if you were to try to understand the fiscal situation and the choices you've got in front of you. And it's a really interesting problem. I think whoever comes in next is going to have to raise taxes. And that's uh, something that I don't think many people want to acknowledge. And so, yeah, I mean, if you think the job of the opposition is to say exactly what all of its fiscal plans should be already, then I think then you could say that they are being sort of they are dissembling. But Osborne tried that in 2009. And in 2009, they went from being strong favourites to a large majority to struggling to get a sort of a governing a governing total together. So I, I would understand their caution in say, saying, look, we're going to wait until we see the books. We're not going to live with the choices of this other government. We're going to wait until we see the books before we start laying out everything that needs to happen. In the meantime, we know that we wouldn't do things as badly as this government and see how far that gets them. I think after the chaos of last year, 
I'm sure there is quite a lot of appetite for that and Labour have latched onto that and more importantly latched on to the fact that uh, what happened in 2010 was that a narrative took hold that Labour was irresponsible with the public finances and they have put preventing that narrative above pretty much everything else. The sort of after effect of that is that the proverbial is going to get real very, very quickly because you've got, as Giles said, a Labour Party that's saying, well, look how you know broken and rubbish this and that and this is. We're going to do it better than the last government. But they're not spelling out any sort of spending plans that are significantly different in most of those areas to the last government. They're doing a lot through reform and economic growth, which is, is of course, what how Liz Truss you know, wanted to fund her reforms. And you had Rachel Reeves uh, at the IFG event talking about supply side reforms, which was a Liz Truss thing as well. So a lot depends on what they can get moving and get going once they are in office. And, you know, they haven't made specific kind of promises so much that they can be told that they're failing on, but they've made a lot of like lofty, long-term, ambitious kind of statements of where they want to see Britain in five or ten years' time. And if after a year or two it looks like there's no progress to that, then obviously they would uh, start to get some pretty significant blowback. Yeah, and it's definitely felt like the last year especially there's been a real tight hold of Labour's policy plannings, fiscal plannings. I think the other thing that struck me last night, obviously this was a book about uh, female economists. Uh, Reeve, and we saw this at her conference speech as well, Reeve is making something of potentially being the first female chancellor, one of those few jobs left in Whitehall, along with cabinet secretary where we've, and also permanent secretary at the treasury where we've not seen a female in the top job. Obviously, we talked earlier about the the rumours about Jeremy Hunt and, and whether or not he was stepping down as an MP at the next election. And we talked about potential reshuffles and so forth. It's it's not outside of the realms of possibility that if if there was a reshuffle, the one person that, that Richie might want to put in there, his own favoured candidate might be Claire Coutinho. So I wouldn't bet against the possibility that there is a female chancellor before the next election. Dan, apparently four shadow ministers are on resignation watch after an interview Keir Starmer gave to LBC. What's going on? So it's extraordinary that one interview on LBC at party conference kind of brought to life the dormant left of the Labour Party who had been keeping their counsel because they didn't want to upset the apple cart and as well has kind of triggered quite a lot of unrest among more moderate voices and and Muslim MPs who are not necessarily on on the left, but are representing a community that has quite strong views on this. Now, what he said in that LBC interview, which probably a lot of listeners have already seen, was um, he was asked about what happens if Israel cuts off food and fuel to Gaza. He was saying it does have the right to defend itself. and, And the question was kind of what even food and fuel? And he said, Israel does have that right of course, Israel must act within international law. Now, what has been clarified quite a long time afterwards is that he was answering that Israel did have the right to robustly defend itself, rather than saying Israel has the right to cut off food and fuel. But in the meantime, you know, you've had MPs, you've had that clip circulating and circulating on WhatsApp groups, on Facebook, on Twitter, all that sort of thing and has kind of done this damage in those communities. And there were three meetings on Wednesday, two of which were kind of Labour meetings. One was quite well publicised. It was Keir Starmer with his own MPs, Muslim MPs specifically, 
where you had kind of slightly mixed reviews. Some say uh, it made the whole thing worse and uh, some went on record, went on media to say actually it was quite constructive and he took things away. And then you had perhaps a more interesting meeting with a larger number of MPs, but with Keir Starmer not there. And I was told that, you know, at least one MP raised there the prospect that this could cost or risk them seats in the general election because you could have large numbers of, of Muslim community in kind of key seats moving against the party because they're so horrified by what was said here. It sounds like the engagement kind of continues, but what isn't necessarily happening is Keir Starmer saying, all right, we'll back a ceasefire. And it's that C word, which is what a few dozen MPs are calling for. And of course, the reasons for that are spelt out. It's because if you're calling for a ceasefire, you somehow have to stop Hamas and Hezbollah's rockets as well, as well as Israel uh, bombing the Gaza Strip. And um, the view of the government, which Labour is pretty much following, is that, yes, you can have humanitarian pauses, brief periods to get things out and, and get a, get hostages out and get aid in. But what you can't have is a ceasefire because, in the words of number 10, agree with them or not, it only aids Hamas because it gets them back to square one and where they were before. Yeah. And I mean, this is really delicate territory, but it's also an example of what it would actually be like to be in government because it's worth remembering Starmer uh, as a privy councillor. The reason why leaders of the opposition are made privy councillors is so that they can get briefings on foreign affairs, defence and so forth. And so he will be fairly well brought into the government's position and the information that they've got and all the conversations that are going on behind the scene with Israel, which I assume is is part and parcel of why there hasn't yet, as I say, it's, it's Thursday, uh, been a full-scale invasion by uh, the IDF. And and it's tricky stuff. It shows how governing is very tricky territory, particularly, particularly on foreign affairs and military affairs, and particularly when it comes to the Middle East. So it is a, a taster for that, for, for Labour, but really delicate uh, for everyone talking about these kind of issues and, and really horrible to, to see it all playing out. That's it for today. Thanks to Giles Wilkes, Kath Haddon, and especially to Dan Bloom. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. Do subscribe, and please do leave us a review. And over at our IFG Events podcast feed, you can find our event with Rachel Reeves, which is well worth your time. A quick plug, too, for our new podcast, a joint effort with Paul Johnson of the IFS and Anand Menon of UK and a Changing Europe. It's called The Expert Factor. And yes, it's an expert deep dive into the big issues and questions facing British politics right now. Do check it out. For now, though, we'll see you next week.